impressive. I'm sure uh, there are certain views uh, amongst uh, Hillary Clinton and her lot um, that we are subverting their authority. But you're right, you're right. we are um, subverting illegitimate authority. The question is whether the authority is legitimate or whether it's illegitimate. Do you consider the U.S. State Department a legitimate authority? It's legitimate insofar as its actions are legitimate. It has actions that are not legitimate. And you've gone after the ones that you think are illegitimate? We don't go after. That's a, a bit of a misconception. We don't go after a particular country. We don't go after a particular organizational group. Um, we just stick to our promise of publishing material that is likely uh, to have uh, a significant impact. To increase... So I thought I'd start out part two of the Julian Assange story with a little clip from 60 Minutes America, not the Australian one. Um, that was Julian the year before he went into the Ecuadorian embassy in London when he was in a... British safe house, um, not really safe house, but he was on remand um, and he was, that was kind of being paid for by his volunteers and people who donated to WikiLeaks. Um, that was just kind of him explaining how WikiLeaks in his defence isn't or wasn't breaking any rules and there'll be more from that interview in a little bit as well as other ones. So before I get into part two, which will be about WikiLeaks, I just thought I'd say that the sources for this episode are a documentary online called WikiLeaks, the USA against Julian Assange. Um, it has, I believe, German subtitles. It's in German, so you have to watch the subtitles if you speak English. Um, 60 Minutes Australia and the USA, The Guardian, WikiLeaks itself, The Telegraph, the BBC and Time magazine, um, as well as a number of others that I'll go into. So I thought I'd start part two with something a little funny to kind of break the ice to get into this one. And this was Julian Assange's dating profile for the dating website OkCupid that he put up in 2006, which would have been around the time that he started the organisation WikiLeaks. Now, his name using OkCupid, which is one I haven't used, um, was Harry Harrison. That's what he called himself. And he wrote that he was 36 years old at the time. He was six foot two and 87% slut. His profile read, quote, warning, want a regular down-to-earth guy? Keep moving. I am danger. Actum. So I thought I'd start with that. So I wonder if he got a date out of that or if anyone went on a date with him. So Julian Assange and a number of others, and I'm really not sure how he got into contact with his initial staff for WikiLeaks, but they started WikiLeaks. It launched in October 2006, and it would be a few years before Julian Assange got into major hot water as a result of starting this. Now, I'd really like to know kind of how, where he was living at the time. I believe he was probably in Melbourne initially, and then he became an international man of mystery. But those are the gaps that I just can't figure out. I've watched so many interviews with him and people really don't touch a lot on his life um, leading up to WikiLeaks. They tend to want to talk about obviously the leaks and things like that, but I'd be interested to know where he was living um, at the time when he started it and how he came into contact with these people. But because they're quite private, we're probably not going to know that. Now, I learned something through this 
investigating this part of the episode. And that is what a wiki is. Now, I'm sure a lot of you probably already know, but I had no idea what a wiki actually means, like Wikipedia, um, things like that. So a wiki, quote, is a hypertext publication collaboratively edited and managed by its own audience directly using a web browser, unquote. So much like Wiki, Wikipedia, you really can't trust it because anybody can go in and alter things. When I was in uni, someone went in and altered um, the homepage for one of our professors saying that he was a vampire. I'm pretty sure he was. He found out he wasn't very happy. So initially it was a wiki where people could go in and change things, but later on it really wasn't. They changed that about it. Um, It kind of started out as one thing and became something else. So the original people who worked for WikiLeaks were volunteers. Um, There was a mixture of Asian dissidents, which comes into play with his early leaks before he kind of locked eyes on the United States, journalists from across the world, mathematicians um, and startup company technologists from the United States, Taiwan, Europe, Australia and South Africa. Now, by June 2009, the website had around 1,200 registered volunteers and it was registered the first domain, which was wikileaks.org, which is still up. You can go and look at it, but it really isn't what it was a few years ago because I think they're a little bit paranoid and also I think they're a little bit kind of out of material because they released so much information. But it was registered on the 4th of October 2006 and the first ever thing published on wikileaks.org was in December of 2006. Now, I just thought I'd read to you from actually Wikipedia about what Wikileaks is because Sadly, their page on WikiLeaks is probably the most in-depth thing you can find. Um, so, quote, WikiLeaks is an international non-profit organisation that publishes news leaks and classified media provided by anonymous sources. Its website, initiated in 2006 in Iceland by the organisation Sunshine Press, claimed in 2015 to have released online 10 million documents in its first 10 years. Julian Assange, an Australian internet activist, is generally described as his founder and director. Since September 2018, Kristen Rufsnesson has served as its editor-in-chief. Now, Kristen, he's a man, he is interviewed on quite a number of documentaries about him. And just in case you're interested in watching any of the videos that they have leaked, particularly kind of damning things from the Afghan war, things like that. Um, they are on the Sunshine Press YouTube. That's where I was able to watch them. But they're also on the WikiLeaks website still. Now, WikiLeaks was a small group of people. And if you're interested in knowing how the electronic Dropbox worked, basically they were one of the first people to do that, although it's a very common thing now on websites. Whistleblowers could go in. They could upload sensitive information to this electronic Dropbox they the servers were then stored across the world so if one government wanted to shut it down they couldn't because there were servers in different parts of the world um and it was made so that when you submitted information the staff at wikileaks who was looking at it could never find out where a leak came from so you were pretty much entirely private um and that's how people kind of stayed safe although one very famous person was found out through you know investigations Now, in January 2010, WikiLeaks had a full-time staff of five people who were being paid, um, 800 people who worked kind of casual freelance, um, and none of them were compensated for their time. It was purely a labour of love. Julian Assange was a member of the organisation's advisory board, and 
really up until the time he went into the Ecuadorian embassy in London, he was the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. Now, pretty much from the year after he launched, so in 2007 um, to 2010, when things really started to heat up, Julian Assange travelled on WikiLeaks business all across the world. Um, there's a lot of videos of him in Iceland, a lot of interviews before he was kind of a wanted man speaking with different news organisations, things like TED Talks, which I watched his talk on that, um, across Africa, Europe, North America, um, Asia, South America. He was really kind of a celebrity in his own right. Now, he does have other publicly known associates. Not all of them have ever been released, the names of them, due to the private nature of it. But um, Kristen Hrafs... I'm so sorry for those who are like Swedish, Rafnison, um, and Sarah Harrison, who's a very famous part of WikiLeaks because Sarah Harrison was involved directly in helping Edward Snowden, another um, whistleblower who is currently in Russia, kind of living in Russia in exile, um, who I also believe should be pardoned. Um, Snowden and Assange are very kind of names that are thrown around interchangeably in relation to whistleblowers. And Sarah Harrison helped Edward Snowden when he was pretty much stuck in an airport. I think it was Hong Kong. He was waiting to see which company, uh, country would offer him asylum. And he actually thought it would be somewhere in South America, I believe, but it ended up being Russia. So she actually stayed with him that entire time to make sure that he got to Russia safely once he released the information that he did. Um, maybe one day I'll do a multi-parter on Edward Snowden. But if you're interested in hearing him speak, he's regularly on the Joe Rogan show. And I love listening to him speak. Um, he's such an articulate kind of intelligent man. And his life is just as interesting as Julian Assange. Now, the first ever document, which was released by WikiLeaks in December 2006, was a document which was a highly private document, which was a decision to assassinate um, Somali government officials. And that was signed by a rebel leader. And that was the first thing that they posted. Now, some of you may wonder and like I'm kind of on both sides in a number of things that Julian released. If it's in the interests of national security or could put someone's life in danger, I think you have to toss a coin with that. But Julian maintains in interviews that he's done that none of his decisions have led to anyone's deaths, which I personally don't think that would be true. Um, I think that quite a number of things that they leaked probably would have. Um, so some of the early things that he leaked, and there are websites that leak some of the major leaks. So I just listed a few that I found really interesting. And there's one where he talks on the TED Talks video, um, I think 2010 um, or 2009, he talks a lot about how he leaked information on WikiLeaks um, that had come through to him in the Dropbox. He always maintains that he never goes out and seeks stuff. None of his staffers do. Um, it comes through to them. So it's really hard to explain and I won't really, but too much in, in too much detail, but basically he got information on corruption within the Kenyan government leading up to a major um, election and that they were doing extrajudicial executions. So they were executing people illegally. Um, and he actually, from what I have seen with him talking about this, he actually went to Kenya. Um, and this decision to leak information actually directly influenced the next Kenyan election um, and kind of 
helped to overthrow some corrupt people. Uh, there was another one that came through to them that they leaked about um, corruption in Tunisia, which kind of led to a revolution. Um, there were documents about the Church of Scientology from within the Church of Scientology across the world. I have no issue with them leaking them. Um, there was documents that came through to him that were basically membership information for members of one of the extreme right white supremacist groups in Britain, um, a neo-Nazi group, and he leaked those. Um, information on drone strikes in Yemen, corruption in Arab countries, and um, in 2008, unrest in China, Tibetan unrest in China. Those were a few I picked out, but there's just so many, and some of them are thousands and thousands of pages long. This was when he turned his attention to the United States, and probably was the lead up to him becoming one of the most famous people in the world. So that brings us to 2008. And actually in 2008, one of the first times that WikiLeaks really got international attention was when a number of US journalists, they call it, quote, the most most of the US fourth estate, um, unquote, the fourth estate is the media. Um, they actually filed a brief to protect WikiLeaks and defend them um, through the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. So very early on, he had the backing of a number of influential groups. Now, that was in relation to a leak that he had leaked, which basically... It's kind of hard to explain, but it was kind of related to offshore Swiss bank accounts um, in short. Now, in September 2008, and this was during the 2008 United States presidential election campaigns, um, WikiLeaks leaked the contents of Sarah Palin's Yahoo account. Now, if you remember Sarah Palin, she was the running mate of John McCain, the Republican nominee, but he, she was also known for saying that she could see Russia from her house. Um, so they were posted on WikiLeaks and members of Anonymous had actually, the group Anonymous had hacked in, got the account, contents of her Yahoo account. I find it really crazy that she had a Yahoo account. Shouldn't she have a more private one? Um, and yeah, so that was the first kind of thing that got them attention in the United States. Now, during this time, WikiLeaks started to win international awards and it's really hard to marry the two things that they were winning the Amnesty International UK Media Award for New Media in 2009 and just a few short years later, people were so torn on what should be done with Julian Assange. Um, now, according to one of the only interviews that his son Daniel, the one that he had when he was 18, um, did, and this was years ago, he's been very private since, Daniel said that when he was 16, Julian had asked him to join him, join forming WikiLeaks in its early days. Um, and also on a couple of documentaries that are on YouTube, particularly the one I quoted in the sources, Julian's biological father, John Shipton, is actually interviewed um, defending Julian um, and saying that Julian had been very open with him about what he was going to do. And I, I very much like John Shipton because he seems like such a kind of old school activist. He was early on when he met Julian's mum, but um, he says, I think he says, I thought it was a fine idea. Now, it was also around this time that Daniel, who was in his late teens, early adulthood, started to have less contact with his dad. And a number of articles and documents kind of point to the fact that Julian was trying to protect Daniel from possibly 
becoming involved in the things that Julian was going to do. Um, Daniel, to this day, from all I can find, is very protective of his dad. He's also very involved in similar kind of, he's a software engineer, but he's, he's probably a hacker as well. So this is where we get into April 2010 and where WikiLeaks started to take, you know, their lives into their own hands. On April 5th, 2010, WikiLeaks leaked the first ever major leak of highly secretive US government documents. And these were related to the US military and to international governments, as well as the inhumane treatment of people at Guantanamo Bay and war crimes committed in Afghanistan and Iraq. According to the documentary I watched, they leaked 100,000 war reports on the Afghan war, Iraq war and documents from the State Department. Um, And in total, all of the documents that were leaked um, came to three quarters of a million documents that WikiLeaks had been able to get their hands on. Now, that brings me to a video called the Collateral Murder Video, which I was watching yesterday for the second time. And kind of the more you watch it, you understand, I do anyway, why Julian Assange and WikiLeaks decided to release this incriminating video. Now, this video, which was released in 2010, is of a 2007 attack in Iraq. Um, it was done by two Apache helicopters, um, USA, you know, soldiers. Um, and this was an attack on civilians and journalists. Now, 12 people were ultimately killed in this and you can watch it on the Sunshine Press YouTube or on wikilinks.org. Basically, in this video, there are a bunch of people standing on a street corner. Now, basically what had happened was earlier in the day, um, there had been insurgents standing in that area that the Americans had wanted to kind of take out. Um, And they came back later in the day and there were other people standing there. Now, the Americans are basically circling them in these helicopters. It's really disturbing because you think these people don't even know that they're there. Um, They open fire after talking a lot of shit to each other. Um, They talk, about light them up. They talk about look at this fucking bastard, um, things like that. They direct um, cannon fire at the 10 Iraqi men that are standing there. Now, unfortunately, two of these men were war correspondents who were journalists. They were highly regarded. They worked for Reuters, which is one of the major media agencies in the world. If you see a picture of the son of one of them when he found out his dad was dead, you will understand why WikiLeaks released this information because there are rules of law. These men are not playing a video game, much like they seem to think they are. Um, In that first strike, seven men were killed and one of the men, who I believe is one of the journalists, he was kind of crawling on a corner and they're still circling them and waiting for him to stand up to take him down. Then a van um, comes up. The van, it comes out of nowhere. It's just a civilian trying to help them. There are two children in that van and the US opened fire on it. The children were not killed, but around 12 people were killed and that's, it could be up to 15. One voice says, come on, let us shoot to his um, superior. Another one says, light him up. Um, it goes on and on. So ultimately, when they got on the ground, they realised their mistake. But as it is the military, they basically said they were acting by the, you know, 
rules of war and that they had not done anything wrong. But they did not tell Reuters how the journalists had been killed, despite Reuters trying to get freedom information for years leading up to WikiLeaks finally leaking it. Reuters wanted to know why their two journalists were murdered and how this had happened. Ultimately, one of the journalists had been holding a camera over his shoulder. You can see that in the video. And the Americans thought it was, you know, a bomb or something like that. Or, a, um, oh, I don't know. It was something, they thought it was something kind of deadly. So Reuters had previously made a request to the US government for this video, which WikiLeaks released under the name The Collateral Murder Video. They had tried to get this under freedom of information, which they should have been able to, but the US government um, and, you know, the State Department and the Pentagon had said no. Ultimately, Julian Assange and his WikiLeaks colleagues got hold of it. They worked for a whole week to break the encryption on this video in the US military um, kind of systems and were able to get hold of it and release it. Now, other documents that he was able to get hold of claimed that there were civilian casualties that were huger numbers than what the Pentagon had ever said had been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And Other documents also said that Arab leaders had been lobbying certain US leaders to attack Iran. Um, Now, if you're wondering where the collateral murder video came from and who released that, I know that I said that it's a kind of secure Dropbox and things like that. Later on in this particular person's trial, um, it was it was kind of released that this person was a man named Bradley Manning, who later went on to become um, transgender and become someone you may know as Chelsea Manning. Now, Julian Assange had been speaking on this kind of encrypted chat system, which the documentary that I watched has their conversations. Um, Julian Assange always maintains he didn't know who it was coming from. Bradley Manning was in the military um, over in Afghanistan and had seen things that he as a man at the time, wish that he hadn't. And he had been kind of leaking stuff to Julian Assange through WikiLeaks. Ultimately, Chelsea Manning has a lot to do with Edward Snowden, which is a whole other story, um, which hopefully at some point I'll get into. One of the things that Julian didn't do in one of these leaks in 2010, in April 2010, that a lot of people have issues with is that there were 300 people's names of Afghan officials and government officials who were working, cooperating with the United States. Um, And this was meant to be kind of top secret information, but he did not redact their names. He didn't cut out their names. He just leaked it all as it was. And a lot of people have an issue with he could have put their lives in danger. But then again, Julian Assange has a very kind of laissez-faire attitude to all of this, that there's no way that it hurt anyone. No one was killed as a result of him releasing all this stuff. So through 2010, it was a big year for WikiLeaks. They continued to publish all of these other leaks that were gaining traction across the world and really pissing off a lot of leaders, particularly in the USA. They published a quarter of a million US diplomatic cables, which later became known as Cablegate. That was in November 2010. In July 2010, they released the Afghanistan war logs. You can access all of this online. Um, And one that I kind of looked into a lot when I was researching this was they released in April 2011, the following year, a leak called the Guantanamo Bay Files. Now, Guantanamo Bay really interests me. 
kind of terrifies me. But they were able to get hold of the SOPs, the standing operating procedures for working at Guantanamo Bay and leak them. And it was basically manuals on showing the employees and the army who were policing Guantanamo Bay how to basically mentally and physically torture these people. Um, The manual said that they were able to hide some prisoners from Red Cross inspectors who had to come to Guantanamo Bay. Um, it said that they hold new prisoners in isolation for two weeks, which makes them basically mentally fucked um, and makes them more able to be compliant with interrogators and possibly give, you know, false testimony. Um, it also went into the beatings, the torture and the sexual assault of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, which I think we're all aware probably goes on. In 2012, they released the Syria files, um, which was kind of highly sensitive information on ISIS and things going on in Syria. Now, If you're wondering if any journalists or media agencies or newspapers cooperated with this, so earlier when I said that they released the diplomatic cables that became known as Cablegate, these were a quarter of a million kind of diplomatic, highly sensitive cables um, from diplomatic leaders across the world. Three outlets that WikiLeaks had approached before leaking this looked through the documents, found them to be genuine and released them in their own newspapers. And these were the New York Times, so (laughs) How the Mighty Have Fallen, The Guardian and Der Spiegel, which is in Germany. During all this, Julian Assange said about his role in WikiLeaks, quote, we always expect tremendous criticism. It is my role to be the lightning rod, to attract the attacks against the organisation for our work. And that is a difficult role. On the other hand, I get undue credit, unquote. So he's basically saying um, he will take all the flack, which we can all see that's how it's played out. Now, I watched a TED Talks in 2010, which is well worth watching. Um that he, basically the person interviewing him for TED Talks, asked him if it was true that they had released more documents than the rest of the world media combined in 2010. And Julian Assange said that is true. And why should that be that way that one organisation is doing that? Um, This person kind of painted him as a hero and spoke to him like he was. Um, Whereas that early clip from 60 Minutes America that I played to you at the start of the episode. I'll play you another clip in a minute. That guy really talked to Julian Assange like he was the enemy of the state. Um, In 2011, one of the highest honours in Australia as a journalist, which when I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to win. Um, I don't think it means anything anymore with the state of the media and how much they lie, is one of the biggest award you can get is called the Walkley Award. And WikiLeaks won the Walkley Award in 2011 for the most outstanding contribution to journalism. Now, not long after that, before he went into the embassy, Julian Assange met a woman who would join his legal team and her name is Stella Morris. Now, I will get into Stella Morris either later in this episode or on the next episode. So after releasing the Afghan war files and the Syria files and the cable gate and um, the collateral murder video and all of these major leaks which showed what was really going on and that there really weren't rules of law that were being engaged by US troops in the Middle East, Secretary of State Hillary, I mean Hillary Clinton called it an attack on America. She also privately said to somebody, quote, can't we just take the guy out with a drone? 
when people like that say things like that, I always am on the side of the other person. United States Vice President at the time, Joe Biden and others called Julian Assange a terrorist, which he continues to do. Many world leaders called for his assassination or execution. Now, if you're wondering what our Prime Minister in Australia did at the time, that was Australia's first Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, who I am embarrassed to say I voted for purely on the fact that she was a woman. She turned out to be a complete wet week um, and there's nothing memorable about her. She's a shitty person. Um, She described his activities as illegal and pretty much since then the Australian government has done absolutely nothing for Julian Assange and I wouldn't be surprised if he says fuck you to us at the end of the day and never comes back here. Now one of the good things was that the Australian police said that they could not kind of press charges against Julian for what he had done like the United States was gearing up to do because Julian hadn't actually broken any Australian laws. It's hard for Australians because we don't have the amendments that you guys have in order to protect ourselves. I think a lot of us have learned that the hard way this year. We don't have weapons. We haven't had weapons since 1996. We had to give them back because a man went on a shooting spree, our first and only, and that was the end. Um, We don't really have a entrenched right to free speech and things like that. We don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, as of this year, we're kind of pushing more because we've realised the importance of that. We really don't have a right to democracy. And if you think I'm joking, the Supreme Court recently found that Australians do not have a right to democracy. On the other side of the pond from America in the United in the United Kingdom and Europe, Julian was seen as something of a hero initially. He was winning major awards for his work, um, including the Time Reader's Choice Award Award for People of the Year. Um, and he even trained, trademarked the name Julian Assange to do future speaking work and journalism work. Now, the servers at this point in time for WikiLeaks in August 2010 were held in Stockholm. So Julian Assange was looking to move there um, because he felt that he was more protected in a more liberal place like Sweden, um, Scandinavia. Now, When Julian Assange visited Sweden during this time, um, he met two women and he had unprotected sex with both of them. I think separate times. I don't think it was a threesome or anything like that. Now, at the time, this sex was consensual. And this is one of, I'm probably going to upset a lot of women, but this is the whole thing where women, I have a massive issue with women looking back and thinking they've been assaulted. Um, We can't believe all women and kind of ruin men's lives over something that you agreed to at the time. Um, So basically, they have a law over there that if you have unprotected sex, you can be charged by police for like sexual assault because he could have had STDs, which is something that they thought about later, which makes me think these women may have been drinking or something before. Um, So basically overnight, as this documentary that I've watched on Julian talks about, When these charges came through and he was taken in by police for questioning and it hit the world news that Julian Assange was a rapist, um, he went from a hero there to, as one of his friends says on the documentary, quote, went from a hero there to an asshole." unquote. Now, he was 
completely um, on good terms with the police. He he went through with everything. He never ran from it. They didn't do anything with the charges and he continued to stick around for over a month waiting to see what was right. So what was happening? So really people who say that he ran from Sweden and that he didn't kind of, he wasn't cooperative with the police. That's complete bullshit. The Swedes did nothing with the charge. Um, he kind of just sat around on bail with no charges. He had not been charged at the time. So during this time, this becomes a really shitty time for Julian because the USA on the other side of the world is amping up their action against him. This was around the time that they realized that the Iraqi, the source of the Iraqi information um, and their collateral damage video was Bradley Manning, otherwise known as now Chelsea Manning. And they were looking at charging Julian under the Espionage Act of 1917, which would see him with almost 200 years in prison if he was found guilty. Now, Julian was still in Stockholm. He was waiting to see if he would be charged. Um, he had not been charged with anything. The case was just sitting there. And Julian on kind of bail without being charged had asked Swedish authorities if he could go to London for work um, to, and then he would come back if they needed him to. Um, that was in November 2010. Now, he went over to London and this is where it, the England would ultimately be his home for quite a number of years because when he got there, um, there was a new, I believe, prosecutor who had come in and wanted Julian charged for the event in Sweden. And he immediately, almost as soon as Julian got to London, asked Julian to come back to Sweden. Julian said he would come back to Sweden and face those charges, granted that Sweden would not start extradition hearings to take him to the USA. He had a really strong feeling that these charges ultimately were just a ruse to get him back to Sweden to bring him back to the USA. And ultimately, most of his um, legal team and a lot of his supporters believe that those charges were nothing more than that. They were a ruse to make him you know, come back there in order to bring him back to the US. So when he said he wasn't coming back, they issued an international arrest warrant. At the time of this, his son Daniel issued a rare statement in support of his father. He said, quote, I have much respect for my father and his cause and these ridiculously ill-handled allegations of sexual abuse serve only to distract from the audacious awesomeness that he has actually done, unquote. So in December 2010, uh, Julian is in London. He is wanted by Sweden, not for the sexual assault charge, for the skipping bail charge. The US is amping up to charge him with espionage and he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the 8th of December 2010, Julian gave himself up to British police and he went to his first extradition hearing. He was then remanded in custody. Eight days later, on the 16th of December 2010, he was granted bail by the High Court in London um, and he was released after his supporters paid a quarter of a million pounds in sureties that he would not skip bail. So if you're wondering how Julian's coming up with this money, it's most of his supporters who believe in, you know, the First Amendment freedom of the press, freedom of speech um, and his right to release this information. So he then did a number of interviews with 
60 Minutes, which I played to you earlier, and I'm going to play you another clip in a minute, um, where he was basically in a really beautiful house in England um, under house arrest. He really couldn't go anywhere other than for a walk around the property, again, paid for by his very rich supporters across the world. Um, he then had another hearing in February 2011. And this hearing ruled that Julian should be extradited to Sweden to face the charges of skipping bail. But then he was also scared that they would charge him with the charges of the sexual assault, which he hadn't been charged with yet. So are you seeing the ball rolling as to why Julian ended up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London? Now, he appealed this to the High Court and they upheld this um, on the 2nd of November. And the Supreme Court then upheld it on May the following year. So this whole time he's in this beautiful house with these strict guidelines as to what he can do. And he did a number of interviews where people visited him. So this is 60 Minutes America speaking with him. Can you tell that the reporter has come in with his own agenda? outrageous. Are you surprised? I am surprised, actually. But you are screwing with the forces of nature. You have made some of the most powerful people in the world your enemies. You had to expect that they might retaliate. I, I fully expected they retaliate. You took, you gathered, you, you stored all sorts of classified cables and documents and then released them to the world on the internet. They see that as a threat. And they want to... Well, they, they see it as highly embarrassing. I think what it's really about is keeping the illusion of control. I'm not surprised about that. I am surprised at how the, the sort of flagrant disregard for US traditions, that is what I'm surprised about. You're shocked. Someone in the Australian government said, look, if you, if you play outside the rules, you can't expect to be protected by the rules. And you played outside the rules. Oh, uh, you, you've played outside the United States' rules. No, we've actually played inside the rules. We didn't go out to get, get the material. Um, we operated just like any US publisher operates. We didn't play outside the rules, we play inside the rules. There is a special set of rules in the United States for disclosing classified information. There is. There's a special, Long-standing. There's, there's a special set of rules for... Uh, soldiers uh, for members of the State Department uh, who are disclosing classified information. There's not a special set of rules for publishers uh, who disclose classified information. There is the First Amendment. It covers the case. Uh, and there's been uh, no precedent that I'm aware of in the past uh, 50 years of prosecuting a publisher for espionage. It is, it is just not done. Those are the rules. You do not do it. No one so unfortunately, leading him to go for asylum in Ecuador, all of Julian's online platforms where he was raising money from his supporters were cut off, including PayPal cutting him off. So he had absolutely no way to support himself. It was then that Julian decided to look at countries where he was able to be granted political asylum. And the one that came to him was Ecuador. Now, 
This was when he turned up at the Ecuadorian embassy with all of his asylum papers, and he intended to actually then go to Ecuador. But as there was an international warrant out for him, um, and he had got there basically under the cover of night, there was no way for him to leave. He was safe politically within the embassy, but the minute that he left, he was able to be arrested by British police, which, you know, years later ultimately happened. So he became trapped in this embassy. And that is maybe where you became aware of this person. Now, I only became aware of Julian Assange when he went into the embassy, believe it or not, even though I was doing a degree in journalism at the time that he was releasing all of this. Um, I don't think our university being a Marxist left-wing brainwashing machine was ever going to you know, have us look at what WikiLeaks was releasing. Um, They had their own agenda. But for the next seven years, Julian would stay inside this embassy with only a tiny balcony where he would occasionally do speeches from. And every single movement of Julian's was tracked on camera um, by microphone and really nowhere was safe. And throughout this time in the embassy, he would get increasingly paranoid, maybe rightly so, that people were out for him. So that's where we're going to leave this episode and we're going to come back tomorrow or the next day with Julian's time in the embassy, some really interesting personal life stuff about Julian Assange, which blew my mind when I found out, Um, his arrest in the embassy last year and where Julian stands now to wrap up. So as it stands right now between doing these episodes on Julian Assange every two days, All that has happened from the last time I did an episode was I think Julian has um, officially asked for a pardon from President Trump. Um, I know that Edward Snowden, who is the other one I talked about who's currently in a safe house in Russia, he has said, because he's such a good guy, he has said if they're going to pardon one of them, please make it Julian Assange because he's so unwell and he needs to be out now. Um, And that just goes to show the kind of person that Edward Snowden is, I think. So yeah, I'll be back with the next episode. Who knows? By then he could have been pardoned. I don't have high hopes for it. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, Um, but I think he's done his time. So I'll be back next time with the life in the embassy and a few weird little tidbits. Okay, bye.